When uh, Israel complained uh, that they had no king like the nations around them, Saul, King Saul, was the man they got. And they found out in that experience that everything that Samuel had warned them about when they would get a king came true. Very early into the reign of Saul, the Israelites knew that they had made a mistake. And so they came to Samuel, and this is what they said. We have added to our sins the evil of demanding a king for ourselves. I think that's an interesting moment of reflection and honesty. We have added to our sins the sin or the evil of demanding a king for ourselves. Saul came to power during a military campaign against the Philistines. The Philistines were on the coast to the west of Israel. They were a military power. They were the ones that had uh, iron and the ability to process iron, to sharpen iron, to turn it into tools, implements, and implements of war. They're really like a nation that has nuclear capacity. If you have that, you don't want anybody else around you to have it. And in the same way, the Philistines did not want Israel to have iron or instruments of, of uh, iron. First Samuel says uh, explicitly that if there was anything that Israel needed with respect to iron, to sharpening things and doing stuff like that, they had to come to Philistia to get it done. So they had a monopoly. The Philistine military campaign sets the context, sets the stage for the text that we read today that uh, Janelle read to us. The Philistines grossly outnumber the Jews. So here's the way it goes. 30,000 chariots. Chariots required iron, you know, for the axles and all of that sort of thing. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. And it says troops like the sand of the sea. So they just had troops coming out their ears. Compared to 3,000 troops in Israel. Well, if you were Saul not exactly looking at this through the lens of, I've got God on my side, you feel grossly outnumbered. And that's what you communicate to your troops. We know that it really doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. In fact, God told Gideon, I want you to whittle down your troops to 300 before you go to war against Midian. Why? I don't want you taking credit for it. I want you to realize that it is I who gives you the victory. And so with only 300 troops, you'll realize there's no way you can win that. First Samuel says that Jonathan, the son of Saul, the bad king, defeated a Philistine garrison, I don't know how many men were in a garrison, but it was a large number of men, with only 1,000 men. 
So there's clearly something going on with Jonathan in terms of his faith, in terms of his trust in God that is uh, far greater, far more impressive than his father. But when the Philistines mustered their troops at Michmash, Saul and his troops realized how badly outnumbered they were, and the text says that they fled to caves, tombs, and cisterns to hide. Can you imagine what that looked like? All of these Israeli troops under Saul's leadership turns tail and runs, leaves the battlefield. And in this little short introduction, we already began to see some of the difference between Saul, the evil king, and Jonathan, his son. Qualitatively different people. Qualitatively different in terms of their faith, their trust in God, and that. And there, there's something I want to talk about this morning, and it has to do with risk. Saul is not a risking person, nor are his troops, probably mostly because of his leadership. Jonathan, on the other hand, is a risking person. Now, for the sake of our, our conversation this morning, when I talk about risk, I'm not talking about something that's foolhardy. I'm not talking about going to the track and spending all your money on that hot horse you think is going to win. We're not talking about that kind of risk, but we are talking about risk that, that seems to me to be uncertain because I can't see the outcome. I can't see how on earth I'm going to do this. And that's very much a part of Jonathan's mindset. After Jonathan won the battle at Geba, Saul sent word out for Israel to join him at Gilgal. Apparently he was waiting for Samuel to come, and what he was going to do is offer a, Samuel that is, offer a sacrifice of well-being. It was Samuel's way of coming and asking God to bless this group of soldiers, to watch over them when they go to battle, and kind of give a high five to the troops. It's a sacrifice of well-being. Meanwhile, the Philistines are mustering at Michmash. Saul knows it. Saul's afraid. His troops are slipping away. Saul's 1,000, pardon me, 3,000 men become 600. He loses 2,400 men on this day who flee to the caves and the, and the tombs and the cisterns to hide. The Bible says that Saul circumvented Samuel, so he takes matters into his own hands, but he does so in a way that only Saul would do it. Jonathan wouldn't. So he stands in the place of Samuel, and this is a lot like a, a congressman getting up out of his chair and going and delivering the State of the Union address. Well, we know that's not done. Only the president does that. Um, it's like uh, a dock worker calling a board of trustees meeting. It's not done. And Saul is going to stand in the place of Samuel. He's going to offer 
through his own initiative, the sacrifice of well-being. He does. Samuel, uh, Samuel arrives. Samuel says to him, What have you done? You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. Now your kingdom will not continue. When Saul saw the mustering Philistines and his shrinking troops, he takes matters into his own hands. In his own words, Saul said, I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So what he was doing was risky. But it's not like Jonathan. Because God doesn't enter into the formula. This is Saul saying, if this thing's going to be saved, it's going to be because I took initiative and saved it. This was way more than just taking charge of stepping up. Saul was bypassing God. I think there was also a sort of arrogance in Saul that was sinful. He was just an arrogant man. Again, very different than his son. Well, Jonathan, on the other hand, uh, shows a different kind of point of view, a different kind of attitude toward his father, toward God. So with only his armor bearer, Jonathan says, I've got an idea. Let's go try to penetrate the Philistine garrison. So there's a lot of, a lot of Philistine soldiers here. So Jonathan and his armor bearer uh, take this huge risk. But it's a risk in light of God's presence in his life. He says, let's, let's just see what would happen. It doesn't matter to God how many men you have. God can work in any situation. And he uses this word, ule, Hebrew word, ule, which means perhaps. That's what Jonathan says, perhaps. That's got risk written all over it. Because Jonathan doesn't know what the outcome's going to be. What he does say, however, that's different than his father, is maybe God will bless what we're doing. He realizes he can't do it without God. God's got to be a part of the formula. But he says, perhaps, ule. And so off Jonathan and his armor bearer go without any handwriting on the wall, without any guarantees. I think that Jonathan is a lot like the five and the ten talent people. Remember that, that parable that Jesus told once? Um, a man, landowner, goes on vacation, takes a trip, and he has three servants. To one servant he gives five talents, to another that's not talking about ability, that's a measure of money. To one he gives three talents, and to one he gives one talent. Apparently, what I take away from this is it was 
based on their ability, on their business acumen. When he comes back, the guy with five talents says, hey, I've got ten for you now. I think if it had been today, he would have said, I, you know, I went to my uh, stockbroker and we talked about hot stocks and, and how I could make some money and I invested your money and here's ten talents. The landowner says, good job. man with three talents said, well, you know, I did the same thing. I, you know, I found out about a new business that was starting up in town, and I went. And it sounded like a good deal to me, and I went and invested your three talents, and here's six. Landowner says, good job. One talent guy says, you know, I knew that you were... You were a tough dude. And I wasn't willing to take any risk. And so I took your one talent and I buried it in the ground. And here it is. And the landowner says, Cursed be you. I think... Jonathan is a lot like the three and the five talent guys. I think he takes his responsibility as, as a God follower very seriously. And he's willing to take risks on behalf of God. He's willing to step out beyond himself knowing that God can bless whatever he does. I would never suggest that Jonathan's maybe. God will bless this, was just a shot in the dark. I don't believe that. I think it's full of faith. Jonathan was saying, I know that God can work in anything. Doesn't matter how big or how small it is. God can bless it. Ule, perhaps... Let's step out. It's dark. We can't see our way. But let's go. I think in, in this week's devotional guide on the website, I, I put the song uh, Lead Kindly Light as part of the devotional thought. And I love Lead Kindly Light. It goes, Lead Kindly Light amid the encircling gloom. And it goes on to talk about how I realize that, that in the gloom and in the darkness, I need the light that you bring to me. I, if I depend on myself, I'm not going to take those risks. I want to see the way. Sort of like that Indiana Jones scene in The Last Crusade where he steps out on what looks like a cliff, a cavern, a canyon. And there's really a pathway there that he can't see. Jonathan does not ask God to bless a bad thing, nor does Jonathan assume that he knows exactly what God wants. But his act is informed by what he knows of God's faithfulness and what God has done in the past among faithful people. God has been present there. God has blessed it. There are echoes of Deuteronomy in this story. 
Moses told Israel at the Red Sea, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord today. Don't be afraid. And also in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots, don't be afraid. Well, boy, if anybody was ever giving heed to that, it was Jonathan on this day. It's a garrison of Philistines and just him and his armor bearer. And he's not afraid. In the first instance of what will be a persistent pattern throughout the remainder of 1 Samuel, the narrator draws this sharp contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Uh, How they express their confidence in God in a military context. And I think we've already seen in the introduction that Saul has no confidence in God. Uh, he, he's not willing to wait. He's, he's got a, he's got a, I've got to be in charge kind of attitude. Which leads him to circumvent Samuel and the sacrifice that only Samuel should have offered. It leads him to say, I've only got 600 men now. We're going to get whipped in the next battle. Versus Jonathan. What an inspiring story. Let's go up and see what we can do against this garrison of Philistines. Maybe the Lord will bless us. Jonathan and Saul, I think, teach us some valuable lessons about perhaps uh, ule. It's a God-centric word. It's a God-conscious word. Uh, It enlarges my world beyond what I can see or what I think I can control. It enlarges it. And it makes me realize that if God is part of my life, a great deal larger possibility exists. It it keeps a healthy tension between personal accountability and dependence on God. One of the the things that that I think I I derive from, from this story and stories like it is that even though God is present in my life, God still expects me to be accountable. He expects me to be faithful to Him and and to be accountable to Him. To draw Him into my life and to be aware of the way that He shapes my life. On the other side is this dependence on God. One side's accountability. It's taking responsibility. It's taking initiative. It's saying, perhaps... But it can't be just that, because then it's just me. There's got to be the other side of the tension, which is perhaps God will bless what we're doing. I realize that God's part of it. And I I can't turn loose of that side of the tension as as well. Uh, Jonathan and Saul teach us about how the strategies of fear or faith change the way that we interact with events. Are are we people who turn tail and run, like Saul's troops? 
Or are we people who, who walk into battle and say, I know that God's with me. And I know it's bigger than me. Will we be courageous, faithful, creative even? I think that's one of the tools that God gives us, don't you? As we live our lives and and do what we do for Him? Or will we seek to control and guide the outcome by ourselves like Saul did without God's help? Let's pray. Thank you for the ways you enter into our lives and bless our work, dear Father. May we be courageous like Jonathan. Help us to be ever mindful of your presence in our lives. And may we never be afraid to take steps of faith, even though we may not see the path before us. Knowing that you and you alone are the source of our life and our strength. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.